0: Welcome to episode 326 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen, with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I had a great time speaking with Aussie-based photographer, Michael Ciccone. Michael has recently gone down the rabbit hole of exploring infrared photography, which is something that we cover in great detail. So if you've ever wanted to learn more about what is required to get started in IR photography, this episode is for you. Before we get started, I wanted to thank our most recent supporter on Patreon, Klaus Axelson. Klaus joins some really special folks who are supporting the podcast financially on Patreon. Since we do not do advertisements on the podcast, Patreon is how I keep the show going. We operate on the value for value model on the podcast, and you supporting the show is how you show me its value to you. Thanks in advance for your support. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Michael Ciccone. All right, Michael Ciccone, it's great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, it's awesome to be on here. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, I'm digging the stash, bro.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a labor of love right here. You just need to tell uh, my partner that you're digging it.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. My My wife really wants me to do one. Mostly just so that she can see what it would look
1: like. (laughs) Oh, I wish that was the case for me. I got the exact opposite. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: funny, man. Well, so, Michael, for people that aren't familiar with you, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of people who aren't familiar with me. I'm uh, pretty small on the gram these days, but pretty much I'm a 23-year-old landscape photographer, not full-time yet. I don't know if I'll ever be full-time, but, man, I'm just doing it for the love of it. So, I specialize with my photography in the landscapes of sunny Queensland over here around the Brisbane area. And I specialize with rainforests, uh, rainforests, beaches, that sort of thing, rolling countrysides. Love getting out on a foggy day. And recently, I've sort of been dipping my toes in the area of infrared photography and exploring the bounds of what I can create with that, which is pretty exciting stuff for me personally. But outside of landscape photography, uh, professionally, I work in architecture, so I can't call myself an architect yet. I'm still pretty young, 23 years old, so I've got a little bit of time ahead of me, but I do work in architecture at the moment, but I'm still working towards getting my certification for that. So I get to live the wonderful life of trying to balance being both a student in university, working on my master's, working in architecture, and doing a photography whenever I can. But Man, it feels like it's so long between times I get to go out for a shoot. Wish it was more often, but that's the story for all of us photographers, right?
0: Yeah, totally. It's funny. I was listening to Creative Banter, which is a podcast with Cody Schultz and Ben Horn, and they were one of their listeners asked a question about that on a recent episode about, if I can't get out much, should I just quit photography? Because I'm kind of <laughs> depressed, and I don't know. How do you feel about that?
1: Man, like... I I do I do understand that like little feeling of depression that you get after not going out for a while, but what can you do? I mean, are you gonna quit your job and just live in the mountains or something like that? Like, <laughs> it I it, for personally for me, when I get out into the landscape after a long amount of time of being off, it just makes the experience that much more special. But at least for me, even if I don't get a photo out of these occasional times I get to go out, it's still just awesome to be in the landscape, man.
0: I agree. In fact, I don't know about you, but. Having
1: more of an emphasis on just the experience and not the end result makes the whole journey so much more enjoyable. Oh, 100%. 100%, man. You know, it used to be at the start of photography for me, it was, yeah, I want to get a pretty photo out of the day. But after making a few friends in photography, and now I always go out hiking with friends, I'm just happy to have a good time with my friends out in the the landscape. You know, if I don't get any photos, I've had a good day out anyway.
0: Love it. Well, so Michael, you originally started with street photography and you had mentioned to me in our correspondence that this is apparently pretty common with younger photographers. And I was curious if you could maybe explain why that is.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I I probably don't have all the answers on this, but in my personal opinion, which may get me in trouble, I tend to think that <laughs> younger people, when they pick up their cameras, you know, they want the Instagram fame, they want those colorful, saturated images. And what is the most readily available thing to a young person living in the suburbs or the cities, you know, you take the train into the city, you go and take some photos of neon lights, saturated, super wide angle lens, reflections everywhere. And it's just those sort of attention grabbing images, I guess. At least that's my opinion, you know, there's probably a better explanations for it. But I think street is photography, that why you did it, yeah, yeah, honestly, honestly, that was pretty much how I did it, like I got my camera uh when I started out with photography, and I thought to myself, well, now what am I going to go and shoot? you know, I guess I'll just go and take photos in the city, so yeah, I just wander around the city with my camera for a few hours uh every couple of days and just take photos of people, buildings, and whatnot, and I think the reason that street photography could also be so popular for younger people is it's sort of uh links into a bunch of different kinds of photography. Like you can be uh, out taking photos uh in the city streets and you could also engage in some uh photography of cars. You could do portraits if you have friends to take photos of. It sort of all links back into that space of street photography and sort of
0: yeah. Yeah, and so what what motivated you to pick up the camera to start with?
1: Well, I actually have to thank my cousin for that. So I was, uh, I'm originally Canadian, so I was on a holiday back to Canada to see family, and I had not touched a camera pretty much ever in my life. I had one, but I lost it at a concert somehow, it fell in my pocket, and I think it got stomped in the mosh pit. But that's a story <laughs> for another day, <laughs> I was pretty sad after that one. But yeah, so my cousin, who's pretty big into film photography, and he always has been doing that for quite a while at this point. I just saw him rolling around with his uh, vintage Olympus camera, and I just thought, that camera looks so cool, man. It's like an old-fashioned metal camera. He had a leather case for it. And he pretty much said to me, like, shooting film, it's more economical. At least back then, it was a bit more economical than digitally. He was like, you could, you could go down to the flea market, pick a camera up for 100 bucks, and, you know, think of how many rolls of film you could pump through that thing before you pay the price that you would for a digital camera. And I'm the kind of guy who, once I get a thought in my head, and I think, um, I think, yeah, I want to do something, it doesn't really go. So, like, I could stew on that idea for weeks, but it'll eventually happen at some point that I'll go and buy that camera. But in that situation, it just happened to be the next day. The next day, I went and got uh, Minolta two, SRT2, right, right SRT-200 film camera. And from that point on, man, I was just a... Uh, pumping rolls of film through that camera having no idea what I was doing all the photos that came out of there looked ugh, terrible <laughs> terrible
0: <laughs> but you looked really cool
1: I wouldn't go that far I wouldn't go that far <laughs> I'm, I i might have thought I looked cool but I probably didn't
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny I I recently saw a petapixel article that was talking about how like all of these you know five megapixel point and shoot digital cameras are now in again, because all the young people are buying them, and it's like super cool to have some retro digital camera now <laughs> really?
1: actually no I, th- I think uh, I think you might be onto to something on that. I think I had a coworker in the past when I worked back in retail who was very big into I-, I never understood it, but he always had like a really crappy camera, and that was like the thing he did. I think it's
0: you know I don't know. I lived in Portland for two years and it's very how should I say this? There's a lot of hipsters there, like people that do things that like, do things that are kind of strange only just for the sake of doing it that way. You know, they don't they don't want to be seen as mainstream. Oh, so, think, you know, buying you like to, a...
1: I think what you mean yeah, to say yeah. is it's for the aesthetic.
0: Yes, for the aesthetic, sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> Well, <laughs> what's ironic about that is that when everyone starts doing it then it's then they have to figure out something else to do differently, so that's why there's constantly this new fad of you know something something that they have to pick up like a like a nineteen ninety nine digital camera
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure for sure that's right. funny
0: well so so you're studying architecture currently. I'm curious how that's influenced your approach to landscape photography
1: well, I think they've actually sort of both influence each other in their own, uh, fun way. In particular, just with the way I approach my uni assignments. Cause professionally at this point, you know, I'm not designing the next skyscraper or anything like that. I'm still doing the pretty basic things there, but through my assignments, it's, you know, you design a building for the assignment and that's a good bit of fun. But I think what architecture, studying architecture has given me the most ability with is it's sort of taught me to not be precious about my work. You know, because for an architecture assignment, I'll pretty much break it down how it works for you. They come to you with a brief. They say, we want you to design this wonderful library. Here are the criteria that you need to get done. And then off you go. You're doing that for seven weeks or so. And at the end of that assignment, without fail, it's always you stand up and you present your design and you defend it to your tutor and tell them why you think it's amazing. But the fun part about that is this amazing design, which you're so excited about and all that. You don't know what you've done wrong. But the tutors who are, you know, professional architects, they know everything. And they will tell you. They will tell you in that presentation in front of the whole class why your design is terrible. So the first thing that they taught us when we started architecture school is uh, learn to kill your darlings. You know, if you love an idea, don't, get, don't be too precious about it because there's a good chance someone's going to tear it down. So I've learned to not be too precious or emotionally uh, connected towards my photos because I've never really been under the opinion that my work is amazing or anything like that. So it's allowed me to take criticism pretty well, pretty well. And it's also provided me the ability to critique other people's works in a more constructive manner because in these studio sessions that we have in architecture, the class also provides feedback on their peers' work throughout the Uh, teaching process every week here, you'll be providing feedback for your peers who are sitting beside you You say oh i like the way that you've done this in design maybe you could change this Uh, maybe this color would look better on the building that sort of thing and at the same time with this critiquing among peers you sort of uh, embed yourself in the idea of aesthetics and working out what looks good and what doesn't look good so before i even stepped into photography because i think i was a year and a half into my architectural education before I picked up a camera, you know, you already have that background in trying to design and create things. And I personally think that aesthetics are pretty universal between uh, disciplines. So, because you know, you are composing the side of a building, it's very similar to how you'd compose an image. You need to think about rule of thirds if you want to be a if you want to do that. But you know, it's about creating balance in a composition on the side of a building. It's the same thing about creating balance in a composition when you are pointing at a beautiful landscape. So they sort of go hand in hand with each other. But it still took me a while to develop my skills as a photographer, for sure. But I think it helped a little.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I'm so glad to hear a 23-year-old say that they're not emotionally attached to their ph- photos and that they're much more open to critique. Because I think that's probably, in my opinion, the most common thing that holds people back from getting better at landscape photography is being far too attached to you know, how good their photos are. I mean, I personally, (laughs) I thought I was the best photographer on earth for like three years. So, and then, you know, finally I received enough, I don't know, criticism where I was like, oh, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. And it turns out I was pretty bad. So
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah. One of the things that I've sort of never understood with with photography, because I've sort of came from architecture into photography, is this whole concept of, you know, the artist going up to his cave of solitude on the hill and doing his work and creating these masterpieces of work. Because the reality is, is if you're this uh, artist in solitude going and creating these things, it's only good to you. There's, there's no, there's no one looking at it saying, hey, man, you're crazy. What what are you doing? You're, you're sort of isolated away from uh, the community. I mean, you might be making yourself happy with your work, but there's no way to know if you're actually on the right track. So in architecture, that's probably, it's actually quite similar to that in some cases in a, at least the university where you'll have students who have their work, they'll come into class, and they'll be extremely secretive about it. They won't show the person beside them because they think this person's going to tell me my design's bad or something like that. But what they put an emphasis on is collaboration. You need to talk to your peers. You need to see what they think, see what they're doing, ask for their opinion on what you're doing, because that is ultimately how you produce the best outcome at the end of it. And I think it's the same with photography. I mean, I have a few friends uh, who I go out and shoot photos with, and you know, I'll be on my lunch break at work editing up a photo, and I'll just send it to them on Instagram. I won't even ask them what they think, and they'll be like, yeah, it's a vibe, or no, I'm not too keen on this one. I'll be like, cool, yeah, awesome. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's important. And I think it's important sometimes to stick to your guns. Like if if you've made an image that you're really happy about and other people don't like it, it's okay to stick with it. You know what I mean? I think it's also the flip side of that. It's okay to like just recognize that not everyone's going to like your image and that's okay.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. You got to be confident in what you produce.
0: Yeah, but not overly confident well humble I don't know maybe you can be if you want but I think that's dangerous too yeah I like yeah I like I like playing in the gray area a little bit but I don't I don't want to I don't want to feel like I'm overly confident about my work but I also don't you know don't want to feel like I don't know what I'm doing either
1: yeah yeah for sure and that's where that's where it comes to that's where it comes in handy to you know Talk to your trusted peers. You know, you don't go out to the general mass on Instagram because they're all crazy and most of them don't know what they're talking about. But, you know, the friends that I send them to, they're also landscape photographers. They always go out and shoot with me. You know, I value their opinions because I know that they'll be genuine with me. They'll provide insightful feedback. And even if I like a design and they, or if I like a photo and they don't, that's fine. That's fine. They'll still see the side. They'll say, oh, I see why you like that, but it's just not really what I'm into.
0: Yeah, and it's a process of reciprocation, right? It's give and take, like you're going to do the same for them. And I mean, that's what's great about building community and building a community around yourself. And I, I recently read an article from uh, landscape photographer, uh, Daniel Lan, and he's like going on the deep end with AI. And he was kind of defending that position in his article. But in his article, he was talking about how he doesn't, he doesn't think there's such thing as a landscape photography community. And I just thought that was such a strange position to take because for me, like there's a huge community, but you have to accept it and embrace it. And you have to put in the effort to be a part of it. Um, And, you know, maybe he hasn't experienced that side of it yet, but I think having a community around you is only going to make you a better photographer and it's going to round out some of your thinking too.
1: Yeah, uh, You know, I, I think I could see where he's coming from when he says there isn't really a community. But I can see that because probably about a year ago, I wa- maybe two years ago, I wasn't in any communities. I mean, I followed a few uh, landscape photographers, but, you know, I had no idea, absolutely no idea that there was this uh, discord of worldwide landscape photographers. I didn't know that community existed, but it's such a cool thing, even though I participate so little in it. I'm really bad about that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did more, but I don't. But even with, I know Alistair Ben has his own, uh, expressive photographers community as well. You can join in on that. They're sort of just, I guess, more niche communities where if you have a friend who knows about them or, you know, the photographer who runs them, obviously you're going to know their existence. But as someone who sort of has just gotten into photography, landscape photography, I'd have no idea this existed. I'd think You know, landscape photographers are just on their own out in the landscape, just one person posting on Instagram every now and then.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I just, I don't know, reach out to people and talk to them. Like that's how community starts one person. Oh, for sure, for sure. So, on the flip side of that, you know, in regards to architecture, I'm curious if your uh, path in photography has influenced your approach to architecture at all.
1: Yeah, it actually has. It has. So, when I started off in architecture, I, we were sort of challenged as a first assignment to, like, come up with what our vision is for uh, how we want to approach architecture. And honestly, at the start of it, a kid fresh out of high school, I had no idea. I don't even remember what I did. I think I just made something up. But we were given that same assignment at the uh, end, no, at the start of our master's degree, which was to sort of create this manifesto, what you want yourself to be as a future practitioner of architecture. And we were meant to create this manifesto in the form of a physical object. So hmm. this was prime time COVID. So the physical object was a little bit more uh, interpretive, you know, it could be a digital object. So I went through the, uh, I might say I cheated a little bit on it because I just took a bunch of images I had of landscape photography. like from years previously and just threw them together into some digital frames and created like a digital art gallery. But the whole idea behind that was, is I really wanted to focus on how buildings sit in the landscape and how a piece of architecture can add to the value of a landscape scene. So all these landscapes that I put in this digital gallery, they were these beautiful old uh, Queenslanders just you know sitting on an isolated hill, fog in the valley around them. and it's just these beautiful pieces of architecture which really add to the scenery. And I, yeah, I just thought that was wonderful. So my idea with architecture is I want a building to just add value to the landscape that it sits in. I, I don't want some concrete mass, which just looks monolithic and disgusting and destroys the landscape.
0: Beautiful. Well, let's shift gears and talk about infrared photography. I know that you've been working extensively in it. And I would love for you to tell us a little bit about just how you got into that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that was a, that was a wonderful uh, financial rabbit hole that I fell down. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy on the, on the other side coming out of it that I, that I fell in there. But pretty much how it went down for me, it's actually pretty embarrassing because I follow a photographer called Neil Burnell. Um, I know he's been mentioned on this podcast in the, uh, in the past. But he started uploading these awesome photos with crazy colors of a place called Whistman's Woods, which I desperately want to visit one day. But there were these, uh, you know, twisted trees with purple uh, leaves, red leaves, you know, yellow moss around them, just looking absolutely otherworldly, Is blue fog around them and stuff like that. And I went through the hashtags on it because I was like, how did he make these? And I saw the word infrared photography. And... From that moment on, it was sort of set in my mind, what is this infrared photography? How do I get into it? And I started looking at YouTube videos and looking stuff up. And I found out you could get this uh, infrared filter called a Hoya R72 720 nanometer infrared filter. And best of all, on top of that, I could use it on my camera I already had. I just had to screw it on and then I'd have to do something crazy like a 30 second exposure in complete sun to be able to get an infrared photo. So they'd all have to be long exposures. So from understanding or knowing the existence of that filter, I pretty much bought it right away. (laughs) And, once it arrived, I was off into my, my rainforest, which is Lamington National Park, and I was trying to get the same sort of vibe of twisted trees and all these crazy colors. And I actually even made a YouTube video on that one. And I started the video by saying, oh, we're gonna get some crazy colors in the trees and stuff like that. But what I didn't know is that the R72 Hoya filter is for black and white images. It's not for <laughs> color. So I had the completely wrong filter, I didn't know what I was doing. And, honestly, the images from that video turned out really crappy. And when I got back home, I was like, what's going on? This doesn't look anything like uh, like Neil Brunel's images. So I went back to his post that I'd originally seen, and I looked at the hashtags again, and I saw this other hashtag which I'd missed, which was IR Chrome. And I looked that up, and I found out that, that was a completely different infrared filter, which I didn't get. And the fun thing about this filter was it would give you these amazing reds in anything that photosynthesizes. You'd have a range of red to orange to yellow and it'd be awesome. The sky would stay the same as if you were seeing it in real life, blue sky. But the filter itself for a 77 millimeter thread, I think it ran me about $250 and it could Mm -hmm. only be used on a converted camera. So I'd have Ah. to either send my current camera in to have it converted for full-spectrum photography, which seemed a bit uh, risky for me at that point. Even if I was sending it to a company that would do it professionally, I'd sort of, at least in my opinion, I'd be uh, hampering my ability to do visible light photography then. So I think it took me about five months from that point where I was just umming and ahhing about buying an entirely new camera and having that one Uh, converted to full spectrum so that I could have two cameras, one visible light, one full spectrum. And then I eventually pulled the trigger and the rest is history.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, maybe that's a good place for me to ask more kind of nitty gritty questions about the different types of IR photography that exist. If you can share maybe like your knowledge about uh, like a history lesson about IR and kind of the different approaches that people can take in order to pursue it.
1: Yeah, for sure. I can give you a a relatively basic interpretation of it. I'm more specialized with IR Chrome. I know a bit more about that. But for infrared photography in general, um, the standard way that you'd approach it if you were just wanting to dip your toes in the water is the way that I did. You have the R72 uh, Hoya filter, and pretty much it shoots uh, light in 720 nanometers and visible light, what you and me see out of our eyes, is a range from 380 nanometers to 700. So it's going a little bit beyond that, where you're getting pure infrared light coming into the, into the camera. And the way that that works is, uh, when you buy your, your digital camera, it has, if you think about the sensor, it's sort of like a sandwich, where you have your actual photo sensor at the bottom. It has a few filters stacked onto it, and then a plate of glass over that sandwiching everything together. And one of those filters in there is something called a UV-IR cut filter. And what that does is it cuts out all UV and infrared light. So the reason that you're able to actually still shoot infrared light when you have a normal camera is because that filter cuts out about 99% of the infrared light coming through. So when you put that filter on, you're getting that extra 1% of light and you have to have ridiculously long exposures. And that's, I think... I think pretty much all that you can really do with a normal, normal unconverted camera, you can really only explore that 720 nanometer range, which is primarily black and white. You can do a little bit of false color stuff where you take your image and you put it into Photoshop and you do a channel swap uh, where you swap a few of the color channels and that'll give you some nice uh, bright blue skies. And then you can edit it a bit more to give it pure white leaves. So if you want to go for the aesthetic of where you're having a blue sky with ghostly white trees, You can do that, but for me, it's just a little bit uh, too ethereal and ghostly. I I like a little bit more life in my images, personally. And then there's also, once you get a full-spectrum converted camera, which, just to explain what that is, it's essentially if you go back to the idea of the sandwich sensor, the company has opened that up, and they've taken out that UV-IR cut filter, and then they put the sensor back together. So now it lets through all that UV and infrared light. And that is how a visible light camera becomes a full spectrum camera. And then once you have this camera, you'll essentially uh, modify what light is going into it through a filter that you'll put on the front of your lens. So it operates like any normal camera. You can convert pretty much any camera to work with this. And say, for example, I wanna shoot in IR Chrome, which I do often. It's as simple as uh, chucking your lens on and then putting the filter on in front of it. But it does become a bit of a a bit of a pain because you know if i want to take a photo in visible light i have to use one camera i want to take a photo in infrared i have to screw on a filter i want to do another photo in ir chrome i have to take that filter off i have to put another filter on it's it's just a nightmare and then you put in the idea of changing lenses as well it's it's absolute chaos in my bag i bring way more gear than i should but it's all fun
0: <laughs> yeah and my understanding is that Uh, You you also should get a lens converted, is that right? Lens converted?
1: No, 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 no. The only issue that you could run into with lenses when you approach infrared photography is some of the newer, like, advanced lenses. You know, if you have a Sony 100 to 400, you know, G Master lens, um, it'll have coatings on it, which are specially designed to cut out that extra 1% of infrared light which comes through. And what you get from that is some weird uh, artifacts when you try and shoot infrared images with it. And what they're called is hotspots. So essentially, you'll be taking your image and in the center of your frame, you'll have a area which is brighter than everything outside of it. So it'll be like you have a, it's not a, it's not a big area, but it's, it's noticeable. You'll have a big dot in the center of your frame for every single image you take with that. And that simply means that you can't use that lens for infrared photography. Unfortunately, not all lenses can be used for that. So you really, before you jump into it, you actually have to check. There are a few good websites where you can just look up your lens and it'll tell you whether it's good, bad, or wonderful for infrared photography. So that was actually a challenge that I ran into with my setup, because I have the 24-105 to 105 Sony lens, the F4, and that one is god-awful for infrared photography, so I can't use that one. So I'm limited to my wide angle and my zoom lens. So that's just the only issue that you'll really run into with lenses in infrared photography, at least from what I know.
0: Okay, okay. And what else do you think we should know about converting our cameras to infrared and why do you feel like that is an investment worth taking?
1: Yeah, so one thing that I would probably say about that, and I'm still debating actually converting my uh, only other visible light camera to uh, to full spectrum because of it. When they take this uh, UVIR cut sensor off your camera, you can actually put it back on as a filter on the front of your lens. So when you convert a camera to full spectrum, it's not necessarily a one-way transition where you'll never be able to shoot uh, the camera normally again. You can do that, but you just have to fiddle around with another filter and decide whether you want to always have to worry about that forever and ever. And they can also offer services, which I personally don't understand why you'd want, where they take out this UV-IR cut filter and then they replace that with a 720 nanometer infrared filter. So then... Your camera is now forever and ever, amen, A infrared camera. You can't do anything about it. It's a one-way thing. So I think that's a wonderful thing about having a camera converted to full spectrum is you can, uh, if at the end of the day you decide, I hate full spectrum photography after a few years, I don't want to do it anymore. You can just always have this uh, filter on the front of your lens. But personally, if you were going to be dipping your toes into working with full spectrum cameras, I'd probably say do what I did where you... Uh, essentially just go to a professional uh, conversion service and normally they sell used cameras which are pre-converted so I pretty much just went to the Sony selection of their shop and picked the cheapest camera that they had there the cheapest used camera and I grabbed that one because the great thing about it is it's a little Sony NEX uh, 7 so it's about 10 years old but it it still has 24 megapixels you know you just don't want to bring it above ISO 100 Otherwise, you'll, you'll not have the nicest image. But at the end of the day, it saves you so much money if you just get a used camera, which is pre-converted, because then you can... I think at the end of the day, I paid just over $1,000 for the filter, the camera, and the conversion. So it wasn't too huge of a financial investment to get into it. And you already have the lenses because it's something that is native to the Sony system. Or if you want to go with a different system, your lenses will be able to be used on that as well.
0: And talk to us about... What full spectrum does to the actual image? If I'm photographing a mountain scene at sunset or if I'm photographing a forest scene in the fog or if I'm photographing the night sky, like how does it change the image?
1: All right, all right. So if you were just shooting in pure full spectrum, I don't actually do that often. Normally I have the IR chrome on, but I've shot it a few times and it's it's a bit, a bit yucky in full spectrum, to be honest. So all your greens and your trees, they'll sort of turn a weird coppery brown, not really like an autumn color kind of brown, but more of like a, a dull, nasty brown. And if you really want to push it in the edit and go hard with it, you can sort of bring that brown up to like a bright coppery color and it looks all right, but it's not really my kind of vibe. But I think rel- other things in the scene are generally all right. Normally it just affects the uh, foliage and stuff like that, but... I'd probably personally steer away from pure full spectrum, but the real uh, magic in it is when you put a filter on it, which, you know, focuses on specific areas of light. I personally favor the IR Chrome filter, and it's still a bit of a trade secret from the creator of it, who is actually a guy called Jan Philippe. The filter represents the colors that you get from an old film called Kodak Aerochrome, which was a film originally developed by Kodak for the military. And the cool thing about this film is it's a sort of an infrared and visible light mix of film. And the magic behind it is it takes anything that photosynthesizes and it takes that specific area of light, uh, which is normally green for something that photosynthesizes, and changes it to a shade of red. Now if you think about this uh, in a military application, if you are in a spy plane flying over a forest and there are tanks and military bases in that forest, all painted with really nice camouflage. What's going to happen when you look down on it? And all the photosynthesizing trees are red. And there's just these green camouflage tanks and bases down below it. And that's exactly nice. how it was used by the military uh, back then. It was used for spy planes. They look down and they'd find, they'd find out where all the tanks and the military bases are. And from that, they'd know where to drop the bombs. So that's, that's nice to know.
0: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's funny how everything goes back to the military. I mean, you look at, uh, USGS topo maps and you know how you have like the green shaded areas and everyone just assumes, oh, that's, that's where the trees are. Well, it's actually, no, that's where you could hide an army. That's, that's literally what it was for. It was like to give the military a place where they knew they could put troops.
1: (laughs) Wow. I didn't actually know that. That's a, that's interesting to hear. Wow! Yeah, same idea. <laughs> yeah, but the reason that this IR chrome filter has sort of become so popular is because the Aerochrome film by Kodak, which was originally produced, I think it was canceled in around 2008 and discontinued, which a lot of people these days are pretty upset by because you can still buy rolls of that film, but a 36 exposure roll of that film on eBay will run you 150 to 200 dollars for wow. one roll of film. So these Aerochrome filters are or IR chrome filters are pretty nice because you know you pay 200 for the filter and now you have uh, Aerochrome in your uh, digital camera. So it's a it's a nice alternative and it's a pretty cool thing. It's a pretty cool invention when you think about it. Cuz the yeah. filter itself it blends infrared and visible light in some magical way and creates these images.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating that it can differentiate between organic photosynthesized material and non-organic material
1: yeah i think the way that it does it i'm probably going to get this wrong i'm no expert on this but um because plants photosynthesize if i get it right they reflect infrared light and because they reflect that infrared light they will show up as bright if you were taking a photo in pure infrared because they're reflecting all that light back at you so that's sort of how it differentiates between it so if you're taking a photo of tree bark that absorbs infrared light because it's not photosynthesizing so that will show up as dark so that's i think i think how it makes that differentiation between them i I could be wrong though there's probably someone someone watching this who knows much better than me
0: (laughs) so i'm curious so let's say you wanted to predominantly use it for black and white photography and you were photographing a scene that was fairly evenly lit um, you know, in a forest, perhaps. So, are you are you saying that like the tree trunks would be darker than the leaves, even though invisible light that we see, they'd be even.
1: I think that you you'd find a quite an interesting contrast in that. So, the the experience yeah. that I have in pure infrared, shooting a similar scene, is on a foggy morning where the sun has sort of not really come up. It's really foggy, and you just have trees that are sitting in the landscape. And essentially, what you'll get out of this is it'll be a big differentiation between the landscape or the tree branches rocks stuff like that and the actual trees which sit on them like big big you'll have very deep blacks but the whites which you should get from the tree leaves because they photosynthesize will be more of a a dull gray and -hmm. if you really push it in the edit you can still get a ton of contrast out of that but i'm talking you have to have the narrowest uh curves adjustment like really bring those ends in and it at least with my camera, it destroys the image if you zoom in on it. But there is quite a differentiation, even in flat light, which is pretty cool. Because I've actually had this experience where shooting on a sunrise day, you know, you get to that point after the sun's come up, and you say to yourself, okay, the light is past its prime. It's not looking as good as it did uh, 10 minutes ago. But if you slap that infrared filter on your camera, and you look through your, your viewfinder, you might actually find that there is light where you can't see light and visible light like it's mm. almost like you have this different kind of light shining in different areas of the landscape and it's as if you're looking into a whole new world so the great thing about this infrared filter is that it opens up your potential for taking photos during the day as well as uh taking photos at sunrise and sunset because you still get some wonderful light with that as well
0: i love that that that's a nice little trick i'm gonna have to give that a shot i have a I actually have my old uh, A7R two that I don't ever use anymore that I've been thinking about converting to IR for a while now, so maybe this might push me over the edge. <laughs> I
1: got my R2 here as well. Um, I'd actually uh, <laughs> caution you against that, though. Oh,
0: come on, Michael. All
1: right, all right, I'll, I'll explain why to you. So it's, <laughs> it's a fun thing with these uh, Sony A7R cameras, specifically the R2, the R3, and... And the R4 as well. So inside the camera, in the sensor, they have uh, an infrared light. Right here in the mount, an infrared diagnostic light. And if you think about that, you have a light right beside your sensor. So if you were to get it converted oh, to man. full spectrum, that light is going to be shining right into your photos. And the issue with that is is it sort of limits you. Apparently, I've read it's fine as long as you shoot exposures that are faster than one second, but if you go over one second exposures, it'll mess up your images badly.
0: So I can't just tear that light out? Come on.
1: No, unfortunately not, because that was actually my plan. That was my plan. I got my uh, A7R4, I upgraded my setup, and I said, okay, now I have a spare camera, which is my slightly water damaged A7R2. I'll make that a full spectrum. And then I looked it up, and it's,
0: yeah. Dang you can't it. do
1: it. I mean, you can do it, but you just got to limit your exposures, which is... You know, we're landscape photographers. We set it up on a tripod. It's after dusk. And, yeah. you know, that's, you want to shoot at ISO work. 50. Yeah. That's it's, not going to work. It's tragic, I know. <laughs>
0: All right, man. Well, I'm going to go... Yeah, that's depressing. Thanks, Michael.
1: Yeah, but you can get the R72 uh, Hoya filter. You just got to shoot those long exposures. Because yeah. you have that filter to cut the UV and IR light, so it'll work. It'll work if you don't convert your camera, but then you're sort of limited to long exposures.
0: All right. Well, I'll have to go check out the website, and maybe they have a cheaper camera that's already converted, and I'll just sell the a7R two and call it even.
1: Yeah, 100%. So in terms of websites and places to get this done, I would personally recommend for anyone interested in getting this done, Uh, First place to go to check out for either purchasing or information on infrared photography is a company called Kalari Vision, and they're spelled K-O-L-A-R-I Vision, and they're the ones who've actually uh, produced and sold the IR Chrome filter, but on there they also have uh, used camera sales. They'll convert your camera for you, and the great thing for you, Matt, is they're actually based in the States, so it's pretty local for you, and it should be pretty fast and easy. And the other company that i recommend is one called LifePixel, pretty much exactly the same sort of uh, setup as Kalari Vision. They'll sell you a camera, they'll convert your camera, and they're also based in the States as well. And they're actually the ones that I purchased my uh, infrared camera through. So I can vouch that they're, they're good quality and they, they have a fast turnaround and everything. Okay, cool.
0: Well, let's shift gears again. Let's talk about printing. So I I can see you've got prints behind you. You've got a printer. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I I can see that you you enjoy printing. And I'm curious for you, what has printing your work from home done to enhance your photography experience?
1: Yeah. So for me, I'm a person who likes to have a physical outcome from the things that I do. So for me, the longest time taking a you know landscape photos, I. This is the process for me. i go out in the landscape, I'd take the photo, I'd take it home, I'd edit the photo. And then it sits on a hard drive and you know, you occasionally set your Lightroom filter to five stars and you say, oh, I took that wonderful photo three months ago. Wow. I'm going to post it to Instagram. And then what? Your photo just sort of dies in the depths of Instagram. But the great thing about having a printer is, is I can extend that phot- photographic process. You know, I can edit the photo, and suddenly posting it to social media doesn't become as important to me. Which is probably why I'm actually so bad with uploading my images, (laughs) because for me, the photographic process ends when I print the image off. I print it off, I chuck it in an album, or I put it up on my uh, magnetic board that I have over there, and, you know, I look at it for a few months and then put it in the album, and I can break it out whenever I want. The great thing about having a printer is that you get a physical artifact from your photographic process. It's like a reward at the end of it. You know, you you end up with this wonderful print. It's just whether you want to deal with the financial burden of having a fine art uh, printer to be able to deal with that. Because the sad thing about having a printer is it requires a ton of attention. And I feel like photographers who make YouTube videos and stuff like that, they don't talk about that enough, how much you actually need to care for your printer. Yeah. Not necessarily to keep it operating, but to be efficient with ink usage. So I'll give you an example here with my Pro 200 I have behind me. I am meant to every other day, every two days, run a nozzle check on it. Because if I don't run a nozzle check and I let it sit for four days, it'll run a cleaning cycle, which will essentially waste my ink. So you really have to be on top of your printer. But if you do that, you're able to be a lot more economical with the amount of ink that actually goes into your prints rather than the stuff that's pretty much dumped into your waste ink tray.
0: Oh, that's, that explains why all the ink in my Pro 10 keeps going out, because I only print like once a month. So ah.
1: thanks for the advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for anyone um, interested in getting into printing and really like seriously interested in getting a printer, uh, there's one guy on YouTube who I'd definitely recommend to check out. His name is Jose Rodriguez. And he's just this really old guy living in the states, but he is essentially the godfather of printing. He knows everything you could ever know about every printer, and he's made a video on it. He has a Facebook group where you can ask him questions, and he's been he's been super helpful. I've ran into a few issues my printer in the past, and you just send him a message, and he knows what the problem is.
0: That's cool. You got the Pro two hundred. What do you like about your printer, and what do you dislike about your printer?
1: All right, all right. So. What I like about my printer is that it's the Pro 200 and it, it uses pigment inks, which are really nice ty- and really nice type of ink for sh- for printing onto luster paper. It gives you these really uh, saturated colors and deep blacks as opposed to pigment inks, which is what the Pro 300 would use. And those are pigment inks are better for uh, printing on matte papers. So I create some, I'm able to create some really wonderful luster papers on this printer, which is quite a nice thing, and on top of that, um, these pigment inks are much less likely to clog your printer head nozzles. So that two days that I said you need to run a cleaning cycle, you can be a bit more flexible with it if you have a pigment, not pigment ink, if you have a dye ink based system. I said dye ink, yeah? (laughs) Yeah. Dye ink. It's dye ink. So I said it wrong the first time. (laughs) But yeah, essentially uh, dye inks are much less likely to dry up on you and clog your printer head nozzles. Because once those nozzles get clogged, you have to run cleaning cycles to unclog them, which just wastes a bunch of ink. So, mm-hmm. having a printer which is dye ink is a little bit more economical if you want to do it on a budget, and you can't always be there to maintain your printer.
0: Right. What general advice would you have for someone new looking to print from home for the very first time?
1: So, what I would suggest is um, this is probably cons- I'm probably going to be considered a, a bit of a heretic for talking about printing like this, but I would suggest to do it on the cheap. So I found a way with my printer to be able to print with the, you know, normal Canon inks that you'll pick up. But I really skimp on the paper that I use. So if I'm going to be printing something to put on the wall, obviously I'll use some really nice fine art paper, which, you know, it's ridiculous. It costs you about $2 and 50 cents per sheet. And in my mind, I, I can't print as much as I want to if I use that paper. So, I found a happy alternative, which is using the, essentially, bottom-of-the-barrel crappy Canon paper, which is something like 30 cents per sheet. So I just print a load of stuff on that. And it allows me to print a ton of my work and have a ton of photo albums of the work that I have. Yeah, what is that, like? Even crappier. Wait. Oh, really? <laughs> I'll, I'll get one for you. <laughs> this stuff. Oh, yeah, okay, yep. <laughs> so like office depot yeah literally like yeah yeah it's just it's just the question because you know obviously if i'm printing something for a client i want them to have a wonderful amazing product and i'll do it on beautiful paper but if you're just printing something for yourself and you just want it as a you know a nice result out of your day taking photos why not print it on a cheaper paper i mean you're not going to get that especially if you're just test
0: printing to see kind of how it looks printed before you pull the trigger on you know the final product, that kind of makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, 100%. And the great thing about having a printer as well, and sort of a way you can make it a bit economical for yourself, is if you're a photographer who, who has a lot of friends who are also into landscape photography, it is super easy for you as someone with a printer to offer your friends a cheaper price than any lab around in the media that you're printing in. Because I can pretty much beat any uh, lab around here's price for a print, as long as it doesn't go above A3+, because that's what my printer is limited by. So if any of my friends ever want to print, they just come to me. And the great thing about that is I make a little bit of money off that to cover my more expensive printing uh, habits, <laughs> and they get a wonderful print out of it. At the same time, you just get to a have a friend over and hang out for a bit. So that's a really like nice that. way to leverage having a printer. Because if you're a guy with a lot of friends, and you have friends who are printing all the time, you might even be able to print your own work for free with the money that you get from them. And you're still offering them a price which is better than the lab, so they have no reason not to go to you.
0: I love that, especially if you live in a bigger city and actually have friends, um, which I don't. I mean, I have friends, but I live in a very small town. Maybe this is a good segue to talk about relationships, um, because you've... Brought this up a few times now that, you know, you have some friends you go shooting with. You have friends that you print for. So I'm curious how photography has enhanced your relationships with other people.
1: Oh, man, it's done just absolute wonders for me, man. It's, it's, it's funny how it's all sort of uh, came to be. Because the way that I've made pretty much my best friends now is just through random people messaging me on Instagram, saying, hey, I like your work. You you know, I'm a local guy as well. You wanna go out for a shoot? And it's just been as simple as that, you know? They're landscape photographers as well. And it's almost like you speak the same language. Like, it's, it's no longer the days of, previously I'd be going on hikes by myself, or when I originally started, I'd be going with my uh, other friends who, they weren't photographers, they were just people who liked going out for a hike. So, you know, you set out on the day and, you know, they want to get to the end of the hike, but you want to stop for 40 minutes and take a photo of a tree. Walk another 20 meters and stop for another 40 minutes and take a picture of a tree. (laughs) And the wonderful thing about having friends who shoot landscapes is they stop longer than you to take photos of trees. (laughs) So you end up just with a great vibe when you're out on the trail and it's just a really wonderful time, but essentially the way that i've made these friends is just through contacting people on instagram you know if there's a photographer who's local to your area just send them a message they might be keen to hang out and for me it's gotten to the point where i've made some of my best friends through this and it's absolutely wonderful but at the same time it's it felt a little bit weird to get messages from these people out of the blue you know julian who was on this podcast uh, a while ago you know just Put this in your mind. You know, I was, a—I think back then, a 21-year-old guy. And just this 30-year-old random sends you a message uh, on Instagram saying, Hey, I really like your work. You want to meet up at 4 a.m. in the rainforest to take photos together?
0: And I was right. Like, like, you could take that a lot of different ways.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could. But, you know, I'm glad that I took the chance. And I was like, yeah, I'll go out and shoot with this guy. Because I got to say, Julian's one of my best friends now. And, yeah, I look forward to going out and shooting with him all the time. So it's, it's crazy where you can get connections from, but it, it adds so much value to your life if you actually engage with your local photography community and you go out there and try and become friends with the people there. Because we're all landscape photographers if you're in that com- community, and we all essentially speak the same language.
0: Love it. Well, Michael, who do you recommend for the podcast? Who are some folks that we should know more about? And I'm right. going to challenge you.
1: You have to include at least one woman. Oh, my God. That's a hell of a challenge because I don't know a single, a single woman in landscape photography who hasn't been on this show. Because I've watched a a ton of your episodes and I've pretty much seen all the women who've been in landscape photography. I don't know if I can actually meet that challenge, Matt, unfortunately.
0: Okay, that's fair. That's (laughs) fair. who 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 do you have?
1: All right. So the first recommendation that I'd make is a friend that i've made in the past he also does has a youtube channel and does videos here in australia and that is jeremy payne and he goes by jx photography on instagram jxp photography on instagram and the great thing about him is obviously he's a wonderful guy but when he goes out into the landscape and he makes his uh videos shooting places he really puts a huge emphasis on the history of a place Hmm. So, for example, he recently moved to the Northern Territory of Australia, and there you have a lot of sacred sites to the indigenous people, mm-hmm. and um, he puts a big emphasis in his videos of explaining why these sites are sacred to the people there, how the, how the indigenous people would uh, interact with this, what ceremonies they'd have there, which is, it adds an amazing layer of depth to the landscape photography when you see these images and you have an understanding of their significance to the indigenous people of the land. Or even if he's just going and photographing, a, he did, he did a video where he wanted to photographed an old telegraph building out in the middle of the desert. And he explained exactly why that building was there, who built it, what it was used for. So it's really cool to get that extra level of uh, depth to uh, the landscape shooting experience. And my other recommendation would be uh, my good friend Michael Robinson. So he's another friend that I made through Instagram i've i've sort of uh i like i like to think i've been an influence on his uh shooting style you know i've provided him lots of critiques and helped him out with his uh shooting experience so he's still uh developing as a landscape photographer but he does some really wonderful stuff similar to me he shoots rainforests and all that good stuff in the landscape and i think it could be a really interesting guest to get in a young person's perspective because he's even uh he's even younger than me which is pretty crazy (laughs) because i'm pretty young as well with the in in the landscape community yeah and yeah yeah yeah, my other recommendation would be dale gribble he shoots on the central coast of new south wales i believe and i've met him once but he seemed like a really wonderful guy and i just love the work that he does he does some real creative stuff with his uh with his images and honestly think he'd just be a really good guest for the podcast I don't know if anyone I've recommended actually watches this show, but I'm going to send them a message uh, right now and let them know that they are now obliged to come on your show.
0: I love it. All right, well, Michael Ciccone, it's been super fun, and I think I'm going to save one more question for Patreon. So if people want to listen to more of our conversation, they can go check out our Patreon feed. But for now, we'll go ahead and say goodbye. Yeah, thanks for having me
1: on, and I'll, I'll see you guys. All right, cool.
0: To Michael for your awesome advice on how to get started with IR photography and for your tips on printing from home. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can find our bonus episode on Patreon where Michael and I discuss the challenges of balancing all of our responsibilities for work, social lives and our desire to make more photographs. I think this is especially challenging for younger photographers who are just launching their careers, and so I wanted to get Michael's advice on how he juggles these things in the hopes that it helps everyone who listens. Just go to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen to support the show and to tune in to over 220 bonus episodes. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.